Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio show broadcast from Melbourne, Australia. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. Today I speak with Ingrid Marker about her very personal experience that she's had concerning cassowaries that used to call her property home and the local pig dog hunters. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. I'm really fortunate. I live within two protected world heritage sites, the wet tropics of far north Queensland, um, which is very rich in biodiversity and threatened and endangered species, and the Great Barrier Marine Park, which I don't need to share how important the Great Barrier Marine Park is. And the main economy is tourism, followed up by large agricultural areas of sugarcane and bananas. So most of the lowland rainforest, which um, was once full of cassowaries and all Melaleuca areas, are full of um, bananas and sugarcane now. Cassowaries have been a big survivor over millions of years. And in your 28 years, you lived with a beautiful family of, was it like nine cassowaries yes. and 18 visiting? Yes, yeah, I, yeah. I individually named, once you know a cassowary, you have to love a cassowary. So I individually named them once I was able to understand their personalities. So we had Avalon and Dude and Ishmael and Toto and Kansas. So I had nine individual cassowaries that would come through on a daily basis in turn, um, according to hierarchical um, system and the females were the first to come through um, and then following when times were lean and different seasonal variations by another 18 so quite a lot of cassowaries coming through the property and we had across the road a large banana farm. Cassowaries what have they taught you? Wow that's a, where do I start? Wherever you well want I guess to. the first time I saw a cassowary I was totally enchanted 
I moved to the wet tropics 28 years ago and I didn't even know what a cassowary was. I'd never heard of a cassowary. When I saw the first cassowary, I decided to become a citizen scientist with my two children and we started recording the comings and goings. It was I was very quick to identify that individual cassowaries... The cassowaries are very early risers and, and um, they're very silent when they're walking through the rainforest and they'll come out and sort of mosey along. They, they're they love their water, so they'll always come in, drink in any of the numerous ponds I've put around the property. You hear occasionally that they're a stupid bird. I mean, that's terrible to say about any bird. But can you tell us, what are they like? Well, they are labelled as a stupid bird because people don't understand why they haven't learnt to cross the road. But my observations, and, you know, they're a prehistoric bird. They're a rainforest species. They've survived for eons, um, since Gondwana actually, and they have no natural predators. So a cassowary is really not stupid but arrogant. They expect when they walk across the road that any a truck will stop for her royal hind ass because she's crossing, you know. <laughs> they, um, they Her royal hind ass, yes. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, particularly the females. It's a matriarchal society um, and the males do all the parenting so she'll go and be a bit of a hussy and mate with many men in the male cassowaries in the territory and then lay a range of eggs in different nests. And from the, different fathers? Yes, from okay. different fathers and he'll sit on the nest and incubate the eggs and raise the chicks. The chicks will be raised until they're about 9 to 12 months of age and then they'll be moved on to find their new territory. Unfortunately we've got a bit of a missing link that's um, a growing trend that we've got big adult cassowaries and we've got chicks coming out but there's something happening and we don't know what it is. I have my theories that I'd like to share with you but yeah, none of the chicks that leave home are ever seen again. I'd like to share with you that I went through an unthinkable crime and my journey in discovering that the EPBC Act, which is the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act, and the Animal Management Act, which is pertaining to dogs and cats, domesticated dogs and cats, and how they're failing to protect endangered species, and particularly cassowaries, and the growing dangerous feral pest problem. You've noticed, Ingrid, in a small amount of time, three years, you've noticed after having this beautiful experience of 25 years. 28. Sorry. 28 years. <laughs> so you've had an experience of living with this these cassowaries that you've, you've come to know and love as part of a family. In three years, they've been wiped out. Yeah, These strong survivors of the Australian landscape are keystone species in this protected wetland area. And that is why you're here today, because you're busy going um, through Australia campaigning for them, on behalf of them, before we've lost that opportunity. Sure. What's happened in these three years? Well, I, I guess I need to share that in the banana and sugarcane industry, one of the um, biggest threats to the industry is pigs. And um, up in far north Queensland, we say the B&B, the bed and breakfast. So the banana farms is where they get breakfast. And it's, you know, a high, 
high food source and in the wet tropics is where they sleep and they're protected. So many of the farmers around there own large-bodied dogs. So these dogs are actually purposely bred and taught to hunt and kill. So the first thing I knew was on the 3rd of February 2015. I was um, at home making dinner when I heard a pack of six hunting dogs not accompanied with their owner come through my property that was um, zoned residential, trespass through it. It's a permaculture farm with fruit trees, hence the cassowaries coming and raiding my trees, straight into the protected wet tropics area where Ishmael and his um, chicks were sleeping and attacked and mauled them to death. So cassowaries can run at great speed but not for a long time they have fast fast twitch muscle fibers so they get very exhausted quickly they've got no night vision and sleep on the forest floor dogs on the other hand can run at great speed for a long time can hunt alone and can hunt a man so the cassowaries didn't have a chance against these hunting dogs so over the next four months the dogs had learnt that cassowaries were good sport and um, I went through quite a lot of trauma in finding that um, many agencies are not able to act to protect cassowaries and all nine of the cassowaries were killed and the 18 were never seen again. I don't know whether they were um, run off their territory or hunted down. Um, it's very difficult to get the evidence and the science to find out whether the bodies are just in the bush decomposing as silent victims or whether they were able to escape. The biggest issue is that the landscape's really fragmented. The wet tropics and the rainforest is in basically islands surrounded by agriculture with fences and dogs and roads. It's so a very fragmented landscape it now, is. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. There are groups trying to work to um, create connectivity and riparian corridors that do a great job, but so much more needs to be done. Roads are another big issue. So the three things listed on the as threats for cassowaries are roads, loss of habitat and dogs. So I was able to work out that these um, hunting dogs are not regulated. So... The dogs ended up breaking into my home and attacking me. So it became it went from being a wildlife issue and many of our native wildlife being attacked by hunting dogs to being a personal safety issue. Well, civil liberty issue. Yeah, it yeah. is. And so I ended up doing a road trip around the wet tropics and discovered that um, many people are losing their civil rights and social freedoms to move safely around the environment, that... People just don't let the kids ride to school. And it's like, who, who are you sharing your neighbourhood with? Many councils um, have dogs that are declared dangerous living in communities. So I'm sort of trying to have the uncomfortable conversation with many people in the community. Like, are you happy having your neighbour with a declared dangerous dog living next door when you've got kids running around and a park up the road that you might want your kids to play in? Is that acceptable? And is it acceptable to have large hunting dogs that are purpose-bred and trained to hunt and kill that can form packs and free roam? 
So the journey took me down the rabbit hole of understanding that many of these people are rural property owners. They may or may not register their dogs. If they don't register their dogs and microchip their dogs, they can't be held legally accountable if their dogs attacks and kills um, or attacks you as a person or any wildlife or any livestock or your pets. You know, grandma's fluffy dog is getting ripped apart by these large-bodied dogs. So I'm currently trying to regulate pig hunting dogs. Mm. Tell us about what conditions um, that you found these hunting dogs live, what an environment you've come across. One of the, the troubling things is many of these dogs are living on rural properties. They're not registered. They're not microchipped. So the council will have insufficient funds to um, regulate it and do the compliance for animal management. So if if these young guys or people have up to 18 hunting dogs, purpose-bred and trained to hunt and kill, it's very costly to feed a 60-kilo dog, um, particularly if you have 18 of them. Now, I've been told that many of these guys just don't feed them and let them self-forage, and where they're foraging is in our protected areas. I have heard also that they purposefully keep them hungry because then they'll want to hunt more. I've heard that too. It's alarming, the the sense of um, irresponsible behaviour and the fact that nothing is being done about it. We have a MP, um, Bob Catter, who is advocating crocodiles need to be removed to make safe waterways, but the the statistics don't add up. When you look at the statistics on crocodiles, there's only been 38 people attacked by crocodiles since 1975. 14 of them were fatal. Out of the 14 fatal, 12 of the individuals um, it was. It's reported were intoxicated cleaning fish at night in a crocodile-infested waterways, and that's across the whole of far north Queensland. When you look at the data regarding dog attacks in Cairns City Council alone in the last twelve months, there's been seven hundred and twenty reported dog attacks, and that's what's been reported. So I'm concerned that Bob Catter recently has been on the radio um, advocating that. Um, People go out and shoot crocodiles, which is illegal and carries a $30,000 fine. He's also been, and this really concerns me, he's been saying that the department's doing nothing about the pig problem, which is not true. The department is doing something about the pig problem. And he's encouraging young boys to get off their bums and get into the, the wet tropics protected areas with their dogs and flush out all the pigs so these boys on the ground and the men in the farms can do something about the pigs. This is an illegal activity. It's dangerous and it's been proven not to be effective for removing pigs. And one thing that concerns me is we used to have a cane beetle problem and through us blindly rushing in, we've got now a cane toad problem. Are we going to replace a pig problem with a pig dog problem? And a pig dog problem has potential consequences of creating a very dangerous feral future for us as humans. You spoke to an army general, is that right, once? Mm. And what did he have to say? This is... (laughs) This was terrible. He said, a pig dog is like a landmine. They're indiscriminate. 
unpredictable and they're designed to kill. They have no place in the Australian landscape. You're not talking about dingoes because there are there are muddy waters here, aren't there, when you uh, speak about your advocacy? and um, I love dingoes. I think they're a native animal that deserves protection. I think they do a wonderful... They've got a wonderful place in the ecology of Australia. Um, I understand that many farmers that have livestock are being impacted and there's this confusion regarding what's a wild dog and a dingo and I didn't know this so it was lovely to learn that a dingo is a family unit you've got the mum and dad they have their pups and next year's pups they purposefully will hunt out the sick weak and old for target for food consumption they'll kill one animal consume it and teach their pups to do the same thing so they target it just an individual. Whereas dogs and their domestication weren't actually taught to hunt and kill. That's a a genetic breeding thing. So what they actually will do is dogs will go in, they're a pack. There's a hierarchical system where they fight for dominance and they're always sort of working out the leader of the pack. Um, If a bitch comes on heat, there'll be multiple dogs that will mate with her. It's not a you know, a bond for life like with a dingo and a family unit. It's just a pack and the pack will chase things for sport. So domesticated dogs are a sporting, genetically grown to be or bred to be a sporting um, pastime, chasing birds on beaches and hunting where if they can catch it, they can kill it. So a lot of the wild dogs are actually will go into a paddock and round up all the young lambs or cattle and attack and kill them, and it's not necessarily for food consumption. Is there a, a pack of dingoes that used to be a lovely stable pack structure up there managing the ecology as apex predators in good? I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I think... Um, Across Australia with dingoes, I understand that most dingoes have a little bit of dog in them and that's why they're classified as wild dogs. I would like to see that what we do is we don't brand all dingoes by the fact that they may have a little bit of um, dog in them, domesticated dog, making them a wild dog. And I think think we should look at, it's like the nature-nurture argument, I think we should look at their, their nature. And if their nature is that they're only taking out one animal, they're taking the sick, weak or injured animal out, using it for consumption, mating with one one. Um, animal, individual, and pairing for life and raising their young, well, their their nature is dingo. The fact that they might have a little bit of throwback dog in them, I think we need to cut them some slack. They're a native species, you know. I have heard with dingoes as well, when they do pair up and mate in in their pack, that there's only that one litter that's kind of allowed to... Mature, is that right? They have one litter and then that first litter will teach the second litter. So it, they'll become mum and dad. This year's generation will be working with mum and dad to hunt an animal for next year's generation and then they'll move on from home. So they, they'll have uh, yearlings helping raise the next year's pups. Then they move on. So they, they mature quicker than a domesticated dog would. 
You are on 3CR 855 AM, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. And we are chatting with Ingrid Marker, who is campaigning against pig dog hunting. So this is something man has definitely created with the dogs that we're concerned about here. Mm. And this is, they are trained to hunt and kill and Mm. they're blooded Mm. um, to hunt. And in your part of the world, in that part of the world with pig dog hunting, it can talk about the rite of passage kind of thing that you... There's a belief system and conversations that are sometimes had that young boys today, you know, they leave high school, they get their ute, they get their pea plates, they get their tray on the back, they get their couple of dogs, they get their dogs fighting to work out the toughest dog and then they're not considered a real man unless they've got their they've stabbed a pig to death and got the tusks and got a couple of photos and then yeah, you're you're a man now. We've got a um a disease called Panama Race 4. Now, Panama Race 4 is a disease that attacks banana farms. It's a soil-borne disease. Once a banana farm has Panama, it, it's basically um, quarantined for up to 40 years. So the farmer has totally lost his livelihood. They need to do it a, a lockdown. So where once that you had dogs running up and down the banana paddocks, um, removing pigs from the banana paddocks, with this lockdown, all banana farms are locked down. So now the young boys don't have anywhere to hunt. So because it's a, a pastime and a sport for these young boys, they can't go into the banana farms. They're not allowed in the sugarcane farms. So what they're doing now is they're illegally trespassing into the wet tropics. So once they're in the wet tropics, we're finding that the cassowaries aren't surviving, tree kangaroos, um, quolls, and all our native macropods, all your scrub turkeys, bush hens, goannas, and all these animals are being scattered. There's also a problem with diseases that dogs carry that go into water supplies that are wiping out endangered frogs right through the wet tropics. And as I was saying before, dogs can hunt alone or as a pack. They can cover a wide distance in a single hunt, and they can hunt a man. So we've had tourists and holidaymakers who have been bailed up, and that's just totally unacceptable in a civilised society to have anybody or anything being attacked in what's considered a protected site, you know, and a protected area of world heritage. You've been travelling around, and I think you mentioned you've got like 7,000 stories you've collected of different people being impacted by the irresponsible management of of large-bodied dogs in your area. Yeah, and, And I guess to help understand it for myself, I understood that we people had domestic cats, and once a domestic cat bred up and became... Um, wild, it became a feral cat. And we all are aware of the impacts of feral cats on native wildlife. Well, I've identified that now we have a, a dangerous problem with domesticated dogs becoming feral. And they're dangerous to humans as well. And they can capture from little lizards and reptiles and birds to big th- to big animals. The other thing that's of grave concern to me is birds on beaches. Now, we have a, a beautiful migratory birds that fly all the way from Siberia 
through Russia, China, Vietnam, across the Indo, through Papua New Guinea, down into far north Queensland and all the way down the east coast. And these little birds come here after that huge distance to fatten up, have a tiny little egg that might be as big as an Easter egg that they laid in the June area. The birds sit on it and when the chick hatches, he's got about six weeks to fatten up, grow feathers and fly home. And the reason it's so important to keep dogs on leashes or even not let them go on the beaches is in this breeding time, it might be good fun for your dog to get exercise chasing a bird, but that bird's neglecting his duty of, of feeding these young birds or protecting the eggs and chicks from exposure and or predation from you know other birds or goannas and so forth. So dogs on leashes on beaches <laughs> is a must and responsible dog ownership because there's a whole lot of silent victims that haven't been attacked by a dog and all their pets haven't been attacked by dog. But what they do is they put their kids in the car and drive the kids to school because they're scared that their kids might be attacked by dogs. Let's go to a break now and listen to a tune by Birdie called Hear You Calling. That was Birdie with I Hear You Calling. You are on 3CR 855am, the Freedom of Species show, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. And we are chatting with Ingrid Marker, who is campaigning against pig dog hunting. And Ingrid is campaigning for more responsible pet ownership and accountability. After many of the cassowaries that she cared for in 28 years of her life were lost to pig dogs, presumably, uh, in a space of three years. To the untrained eye, Ingrid, uh, people might look at a cassowary and think, oh, is that a small emu? What's the difference between an emu and a cassowary? Well, I've been really lucky. I'm I'm actually the on-site caretaker of the Garners Beach Cassowary Hospital And that's operated by Rainforest Reserves Australia, a non-for-profit organisation that looks after and does an amazing job of revegetating the landscape and making riparian corridors. Well, the department brought me in this three-day-old cassowary chick and it needed to bond an imprint with um, something and we did a RSPCA rescue on a baby emu and we bonded them together. So one thing I can tell you is... uh, Baby cassowary is a ninja. It can duck and weave and roll and triple backward somersault with a half pike and is infinitely intelligent. It runs around all morning and all afternoon, but it loves to have its siestas at lunchtime. It's a heavier set bird than an emu when it's um, fully matured and it's got a beautiful coloured head with a large cast and they believe the cast is like a crown, is used for hearing. An emu, on the other hand, in the chick and the cassowary interaction, I noticed, could run very fast in a straight line, didn't know how to turn corners and would run into the fence and, and um, the, the <laughs> trees, even though it knew it was going, about to hit it. It couldn't change course rapidly. It 
was very, very distressed if ever it was left alone. So they're very much a herding animal or a, I don't know what you call them. They're not flocks, are they? Flock of... Oh, emus. Flo- oh, I have to look that one up. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Um, so cassowary um, is a solitary animal. An emu likes to be with its mob and they eat grain. Cassowaries eat fruit. And the interaction between the emu and the cassowary was absolutely divine with them fighting over whose food and they'd swap food and in the middle of the day the cassowary likes to have some time out siesta and would sit and have a little um, sleep and meditate for a while and the emu would run around going, where are you, where are you, where are you, around the cage, (laughs) and the cassowary would still be in the same spot every day for six months but the emu would never remember from day to day. So I think a cassowary is infinitely more independent, intelligent, um, self-sufficient, and a lot more ninja. The cassowary's been here, and I know I said this before, but I'll say it again, for millions of years as a keystone species. So it, can you just take us through that, actually, the keystone species aspect of the cassowary? How important are they in the whole ecology of the wetland? As you know... All over the world, we have tropical rainforests and the main seed dispersal is primates. Here in Australia, we don't have any primates. We have our very unique, special cassowary. And the cassowary moves across the landscape. The only other animal that moves large seeds around the landscape in Australia is bats. Bats, unfortunately, can destroy the seed, but they do move seeds around. So it's only cats and cassowaries that move these seeds around and cassowaries need a a fairly large territory where they go from lowland to highland rainforest they survive cyclones they're the most adaptable amazing animals and what what i personally love about a cassowary is they're so individual they've got their individual moods and personalities and their quirkiness and different levels of intelligence and arrogance and they're forever mindful and alert. They've got a very stately presence. They're omnivores. They'll go right through and they're fishermen. They'll go down and sit in a creek and ruffle up their quills and catch fish. They'll go all the way from the beach and they love swimming through mangroves all the way up into the mountains. So we need our landscape, particularly in an east-west direction, to have riparian corridors. They need to be able to move around the landscape. We we need to be more mindful of how we map out the landscape so that we don't fragment these land-based animals. Um, so they can move around, and that includes tree kangaroos and all the different species that are getting landlocked. So when you say riparian corridors, can you explain that for listeners that don't know what that means? A riparian corridor is um, basically a highway where you have um, a water water course. So that will also look after the water quality. So where we have we, – we live in the wet tropics, so we can get up to three metres or more in, in a season of three or four months over the wet season – 
that rain hits the topsoil and if it's a sugarcane or banana farm there's a lot of soil exposed. By keeping trees and vegetation next to the creek edges it looks after the water quality but it also allows these all wildlife to move through these areas from when we get a cyclone we need them they need to be able to move from the lowland to the highland rainforest too and valleys and creeks to stay safe from the winds and how much of an area does a cassowary family need like are they have they got large territories they don't really know it depends on the vegetation type they're living on and where they're trapped <laughs> in these landlocked areas. So um, anything from a five square kilometre per bird. So once a a male and a female mate up and have a couple of chicks, um, the chicks become 12 months old, they need to find their own territory. So wherever they go, they're going to be trespassing on somebody else's territory if they're um, unlucky. And they then will be tempted to cross a highway or tempted to cross a, a farmer's property where these dogs are. Are living, they're not fenced, and so there's no real um, mechanism for them to find their own territory. So we're losing them. They believe there's only 1,200 left. My research shows that um, the biggest problem is we don't have the data. When a dog um, is seen chasing a cassowary, it might go from a residential zone to a rural zone into the wet tropics. That cassowary may have come into that person's property, be known by that individual. They come in on a daily basis and drink or or raid their fruit trees in these areas. They all know that's Bella or that's Dude or Ishmael or Toto or Kansas. And um, then they'll be seen being chased by hunting dogs. They're never seen again. But because the, the animal has fled at such speed into the rainforest followed by a pack of dogs or one dog, even one um, kelpie, pulled down a cassowary and killed it um, a couple of months ago. Um, they're often, we don't often find the bodies. So unless you can find the body, we can't get the data. No data, no scientific evidence. There's no policy change to address it because as far as the departments are concerned, it hasn't happened. And yet as a, um, a cassowary carer, I attended 28 call-outs last year just in Mission Beach in all those instances, I saw horrendous crimes, and I call it a crime, and they're serial killers. I've seen live cassowary chicks get, you know, be used for a rope, like for tug of war with two dogs pulling them apart. I've seen cassowaries chased into dams and be, you know, bloodied up and then, you know, having to quickly escape and leave their chicks to the peril of the dogs to distract the dogs. All of these incidences. I wasn't able to recover a body, and that's 28, and that's just me and my call-outs. Now, when I've brought that all to the ministers and the powers that be, they say, well, there's no evidence. It's only hearsay. Where do we go? Where do we go when they we can't get funding, we can't get science, we can't prove what's happening? Um, it, it's extinction by neglect, it is. It's totally extinction by neglect and it needs to be addressed. And it's not just cassowaries. It's koalas, it's quolls, it's tree kangaroos, it's bilbies, it's green frogs. 
So basically we've got these situations where that we have laws anyway and you've got and it's a protected area. So what needs to happen for this to change and for and to what do we need to do to protect the cassowary population that's hopefully still there in your mind? Have the difficult conversation of who you're sharing your neighbourhood with. Do we want large-bodied dogs? The way I see it is if uh, a motorbike's out of control on a road, um, it's not going to cause the same impact as a big truck sliding out of control in a residential road. So do we want large-bodied dogs in in residential areas? Do we want multiple of them? If dogs do get out, they they do become a pack. Um, So responsible dog management is one thing that really needs to be addressed. And when dogs are moving across the landscape, they go across multi-jurisdictional zones. So for myself, I'm zoned residential. So as a residential owner, I have to work with local council. Now, my local council doesn't have weekend or after-hours compliance, nor does it have large enough traps to capture large-bodied dogs. And so the issue also is it's not just the dog's behaviour. If my observation and the 7,000 stories I've collected is that if you're, you've got a roaming dog, you're generally an irresponsible dog owner and you might people are afraid of reprisals from the dog owners. If you're on rural land, you're legally able to shoot, trap or poison. So many people can use, no, farmers use 1080 to get rid of wild dogs and dingoes. This has secondary kills. So mm-hmm. then you've got your raptors, your goannas and your owls and hawks being killed by these secondary kills, which is another impact on our native wildlife. And does the 1080 kill cassowaries as well? They don't believe it does because they've got a short digestive um, system, so it goes straight through their body. But no testing's been done on that. And I guess the the takeaway message is that we we recognise pigs are a problem. There's no arguing that pigs are an introduced problem to most of Australia's, you know, um, wild places. We need good management solutions for that. And the government is assisting with that um, by putting in baiting and trapping programs with large traps and encouraging each um, bipartisan arrangement with neighbours to the wet tropics and other areas to work in conjunction with national parks to do trapping. Now, that is thwarted by these young boys that come through with their dogs illegally through the wet tropics and scatter the pigs. So that's been hampered. And there's an animal cruelty um, issue here. And RSPCA is totally not good with people using dogs to attack any animals, let alone be in the wet tropics attacking native animals, Mm. pigs. And unfortunately, I have heard of, well, in Victoria anyway, where they purposefully want the pig population to still be there. Yes. A lot of hunters, so they'll make sure that there's an assured resource and population next year. Mm. So as far as changes to the EPBC Act... It's clear our national environment laws are failing. What we're asking for is the national environment laws that generally protect Australia's national and cultural heritage an independent National Sustainability Commission, an independent National Environmental Protection Authority 
and guaranteed community rights and participation in environmental decision-making that's totally transparent. I believe once that's put in place, we can be a lot more confident that our threatened and endangered species are better protected. Yep, failing that, I'm concerned by the threat of a dangerous feral future and the loss of our irreplaceable wildlife that is our national and natural and cultural heritage. The classification feral, I, as an animal advocate, I, the label, I go, oh, let's not... By naming something feral doesn't mean you are allowing cruelty towards that animal. It's our accountability here to put in protective mechanisms. Yep. Anybody who'd like to know more about what I've been doing can look at Cassowary Keystone Conservation. Um, they could help support um, tighter tighter environmental laws with the EPPC Act um, by looking at BirdLife Australia and they've got two campaigns called Appeal, A-P-E-E-L and that's Australian Panel of Environmental Experts League and Places You Love. National parks in far north Queensland, there's only 0.01% left. The rest is cleared for agriculture like sugarcane and banana and, and... it's so small, so fragmented, and it's surrounded by large-bodied dogs that aren't regulated and they're taught to hunt and kill. You don't want to say the words I remember when. Can you tell us more about that? Well, my dear friend Margaret Thrallsburn was um, an environmentalist who made huge headways in protecting the Torres Strait Island pigeon that was being wiped out by shooters up on the islands, the family group of islands near Dunk Island and Hitchinbrook Island, and an amazing conservationist and an amazing woman. And um, her saying was, I remember when. And I remember ringing Margaret up one day. She's in the 90s now and saying, Margaret, I remember when I lived with a family of wild cassowaries. Nick on. And the department say it never happened. And I've got 28 years of photographic evidence and reporting and citizens and scientists that it did happen. And I saw it. And I don't have the bodies to prove it. was a tune by Lisa Firestone called I Dream Wildlife Song. Before the tune, we had a chat with Ingrid Marker, who does a lot of work on behalf of the cassowary. Ingrid shared her pretty traumatic story that after sharing her property in northern Queensland for 28 years, she came to know a family of cassowaries. There were nine that were regulars and uh, 14 that would just travel through at times. Um, she, She named them. They were part of her family. And within a space of three years, they all disappeared. And she puts that down to the local hunters that have pig dogs. So they breed the the dogs to kill 
pigs in the for the sugarcane and, and banana farms up there where pigs are considered a pest. Now, the thing is, pig dogging, pig hunting uh, has proven not to have any effect on the unwanted pig population in those farms. So it's, look, it's cruel for the pigs. It's cruel for the actual dogs that are bred to hunt. And it's actually really cruel for the wildlife or incidental other species that are killed or mauled uh, from these these uh, pig dogs. And she does make the distinction, we're not talking about dingoes, we're talking about bred pig dogs here. So it's it's important not to tar all dogs in our environment as wild dogs because that's very problematic. If you'd like to listen to her story, uh, you can download the podcast. I noticed during the week that the RSPCA launched their furry army campaign in the run-up to the Victorian state election. And this is off the back of a study that they funded to determine what key animal welfare issues Victorians want to see on the political agenda. There were 2,000 people involved, including more than 700 in marginal electorates that shared their views. And from that study, the RSPCA identified four key issues that resonate strongly with voters and in their view, have the potential to significantly improve animal welfare. Uh, one was vote for reuniting pets. One was for dissexing. One was for duty of care. And the fourth one was vote for mandatory codes, which I think is really important because no matter where you sit on the spectrum of animal welfare to animal rights or animal liberation, um, we all know that this is something that's continuously infuriating because when it comes to people potentially being charged with animal cruelty, it's so hard for people to actually, you know, bring across a a prosecution because um, even though there are codes, they're not mandatory. So basically they use an example on their website they have a picture of a cockatoo, so a caged bird, while the code recognises that I need enough space to fly and express natural behaviours, it's not law, so I could live my whole life, that's 50 years, in a cage that doesn't allow me to spread my wings. And there's another example, a picture of a, a bull. The code says appropriate anaesthetic should be used for painful procedures like castration, but there's no law that says it is a must. Um, and there's another picture of a sheep. Uh, the code says I should have a six-metre tether, but mine is only two metres. I'm tied to this post all day long with little room to move and express natural behaviours like frolicking, exploring and grazing, and I cannot flee from predators. So RSPCA Victoria is calling for animal welfare codes of practice to be made mandatory. Most codes of practice under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act 1986, referred to as POCTA, are advisory only and therefore are difficult to enforce. Making them mandatory would provide a specific set of minimum standards that anyone involved in the use, management and control of animals would need to abide by. So you can sign up to the Fairy Army and you'll learn more about election priorities and what you can do to help influence policy changes. 
theworkshop.com.au website. I noticed on Tuesday, the October 16th date, 6.30 to 9pm in Melbourne again, they have a How to Vegan Cooking for a Plant-Based Diet workshop with Christina Gore. Look, it is $60 to $70. Um, so just have a look on the workshop. That's work-shop.com.au webpage. And of course, World Vegan Day is coming up on the 14th of October. That's Sunday, the 14th of October in Melbourne. So if you're elsewhere in Australia, book your tickets. This is a fantastic event that's been going for many years and just gets bigger and bigger. Fantastic cooking demos, loads of food stalls, great speakers, art show, It's proving to be a big one. So that's at the Melbourne Showgrounds. It's so big. So Sunday, the 14th of October, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Time for me to get out of here and make way for In Psychedelia. Uh, If you'd like to contact us, please do. Uh, The best way at the moment is actually through our Facebook page. So having a bit of a glitch. So I apologize to anyone who has emailed info at Freedom of Species. I'd like to thank Ingrid Marker for making time to speak with us today. Taking us out is a tune by Vance Joy called I'm With You. See you next week. I saw you standing there, sandy blonde hair, the way you came tumbling down. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.